0: Well, uh, welcome to River City Church. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. If you are new or visiting, just wanted to say welcome. Good to have you here this morning. Uh, we are uh, in the studying the book of Colossians over the last eight weeks or so. Here we're nearing the end of our time studying in the book of Colossians, and. Uh, last week, what happened in our study is that we kind of hit the turning point in the book. In just about every one of Paul's letters, he begins with the indicatives of the gospel. He begins almost every one of his letters, um, talking about who we are because of Jesus, talking about our new identity that comes in and through him and because of the gospel. So Paul always begins with the indicatives, but he never ends there. The indicatives of the gospel always lead to the imperatives. And so the indicatives are what is true, they're the facts. And the imperatives, then, are what we do in light of the facts. It's what we, how we live, how we respond to what is true. The indicatives of the gospel, they always lead to the imperatives, how we live in light of who Jesus has made us to be. And over the past few weeks, one of the things that we talked about is that what happens is when we flip those two, when we flip the indicatives and the imperatives, what we get is legalism and legalism what legalism does is it calls us to become by our own effort what we think we 're supposed to be. We look at the list of of who got of what we 're supposed to do, and we say if I just if I would just do the things on the list then that's what would change my standing with God. That's what would change my status with God. And that's at the heart of that is the idea of legalism. It's the belief that by our own effort, by our own actions, by our own power, we make the indicatives become true. But what is true, when we start with the indicatives, we start with the facts, what is true about us, and we move on to the imperatives, we get the gospel. And the gospel is in opposition to legalism because the gospel calls us to become, by God's strength, What he has declared, we already are. The gospel calls us to to become by God's strength what he has declared, we already are. And we saw that, that's what Paul is calling us to in chapter three. His call to us as followers of Jesus is, be what you already are. Be what you already are. Verse one of chapter three, it began last week, it said, since you have been raised with Christ. He spent the first two chapters telling us who Jesus was, and all that he has done, and our new status, our new standing, our new identity in him, and he says, because that is true, live in light of it. Because that's already true, live that way. Because you are new in Christ, because you are dead to sin, and alive to righteousness in him, live that way. This is the essence of gospel motivations. It's not about duty or obligation or about guilt or about shame. It's not trying to get an identity. It's not trying to earn an identity. It's not trying to earn or change a status or a standing with God. Gospel motivations are rooted in an identity we already have. And what happens is it results in a joyful and a passionate response to all that God has graciously done for us. And what that looks like, the outworking of that, is it looks like increasing obedience. It looks like us obeying the Lord and following him and doing what he says and living in light of his will and his decree. The fancy theological word for that is sanctification. It's us looking more and more and more like Jesus. And we we saw last week that sanctification has two parts, We hit the first part last week. Part one is that we put sin to death. It's it's the putting off of our old self. We talked about how the way that we do that is we use grace driven effort. It's not fear driven effort, it's not guilt driven effort, it's not pride driven effort. It's grace-driven effort in response to all that God has done for us. And so what we do is we set our eyes on things above and not on things of this earth. What we talked about last week is that what we do in light of that is we want to be careful to pay attention to the things that stir up our hearts, the things that stir up our affections for the Lord, the things that when we're with those people or when we're in those situations or when we're thinking about these things, what it does is it, it, it stirs up in us a love for the Lord and a longing to pursue Him. And at the same time, what we need to do is we need to be careful of the things that rob our attentions, the things that rob our affections, the things that distract us, the things that pull our hearts away from him. And so what we do in light of setting our eyes on things that above is that we root out sin at the root. It's not about mowing over things, but it's about identifying what is wrong at the heart level and, and relentlessly ripping up the weeds of sin in our lives. But putting sin to death is just the first part of our sanctification. We can't just put sin to death. We can't just rip up the weeds of sin in our lives. We have to plant something new in its place or the weeds are just going to come back. You cannot put sin to death in your life. You cannot take off what is wicked without putting on what is good. And that's where Paul takes us this morning to part two of our sanctification. You see, the gospel calls us to become, by God's strength, well, he's what we already are, and that involves us, one, putting sin to death, but two, it involves us putting on the character of Christ. And so with that in mind, let's pray. We'll dive into our passage this morning. Lord Jesus, so thanks so much for your word and our time together in it. God, we just come. We just ask that you would help us to understand your word rightly this morning as we study. God, we just, we ask that you just continue to point out to us by your spirit where our lives are not in line with your word and to remind us not to try harder to change on our own, but to trust you to empower us to be the people you've already declared that we are. So God, we just ask that you capture our hearts and our attention, that Jesus would just be good news to us this morning, that the gospel would be precious to us as we see it. God, I just pray that you'd fill me with your spirit so that the words that I have to speak this morning aren't my own, but they're yours. God, we love you. Thanks that you've loved us first. We want to submit ourselves under the authority of your word. We pray that that would be for our good and for your glory. Amen. Amen. Well, we are in Colossians 3, verses 12 through 17. It's the second half of chapter 3 here. Verse 12 begins this way Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. And bear with each other. Forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, and forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all of these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body, we're called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether it is in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Last week we talked about how our new identity in Christ means that we need to put sin to death. This week. Our new identity in Christ is about putting on Christ-like character and attitudes. But Paul begins in verse 12 with these words. He says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, he goes like roughly 10 verses before getting back to the indicatives of the gospel. Because he knows that's about all we can take before we forget. It's about 10 verses, it's about all we got before we start forgetting who we already are in Christ, before we start moving on to the lists. All right, let's just work on the list. And Paul says, no, 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 we're coming back. Just in case we forgot in the first 11 verses, you are God's chosen people. You are his holy people. You are his dearly loved people. What Paul is trying to say before he even gets again to the imperative, he said, God already loves you. God sees you as holy and blameless already. God chose you already. What he's about to say is rooted in these truths. And if we're going to actually grow in our sanctification, if we're going to actually ever going to seriously pursue and chase after godliness, then we've got to understand just this fundamental truth. We've got to understand that God already loves us. One of the great theologians, uh, Charles Spurgeon, on his deathbed, he was asked, uh, what is the most important thing you've learned about God? And he said, over the years, my theology, uh, over the years, he said, my theology has uh, centered on this one thing. Jesus loves me, this I know. That's what it all whittled down to for him. You see, the Bible talks about God as a good father who loves His kids unconditionally. God does not just tolerate his kids. He doesn't just like put up with them in order to get to bedtime. He doesn't just like deal with them long enough so that he can pass them off to somebody else. The Bible talks about God as a father who dearly loves his kids. He doesn't love us based on our performance or based on our worthiness. Ephesians 2 just says, "He chose to direct." His love at us. Having kids, I think, has been one of the, I would just say, the, the hardest thing that my wife and I have ever had to do. Gotten the opportunity to do, not had to, I suppose. But it's also been, I think, one of the best gifts that God has ever given us. I have learned so, in so many ways things I could never have learned without being a father myself. I remember when Emma was born, I remember uh, while she was in the womb, and I just didn't know how to feel about her. Uh, I don't know if any of you who are first-time fathers have ever had that experience, but like, I was excited to meet her, but I just, didn't know how I, I just didn't know how I felt about her. It was just this really weird thing. And as soon as she was born, as soon as she was there, I just immediately loved her. Like, I, I didn't, like, have to work at it. I didn't, like, try for it. I wasn't, like, trying to convince myself. Like, I just loved her immediately. I remember one year, just after Emma was born, I was uh, teaching at an university conference, talking to my students about God's fatherly love for us, and it was just something that God had been just, just really graciously teaching me over the, over the last six months or so. I just remember just, just with tears in my eyes, just talking with them about the love of God as a father. It had become such good news to my heart over the last six months. It was something God was just graciously showing me But I think the tears that I was crying that afternoon as I talked with my students was also because what I knew very clearly is that so many of them had never known the love of a father. They had no idea what a good father's love looked like. They had never experienced it, they had never seen it, they had never enjoyed it. Their relationships with their fathers was either absent or totally not together. It was either their boss, they just saw their dad as a boss where they always needed to get his approval or gain his approval or work really hard so they didn't mess up the approval that they would give him. My heart was that they would know the love of God as a good father. Oh, that we would know the love of God, how high and how wide and how far and how deep his love is, how relenting it is, how unconditional it is. If my heart for them was that if they could just see how pleased God is with them, that not because of their impressiveness, but because they're just his kids. You see, what happens is we forget we are loved by God or we just don't believe it in the first place. And because we forget that he already loves us, we try to earn his favor instead of enjoying his favor that we could never, ever earn. What happens is we forget that we're already holy. When you forget that you, when you, forget that you are already holy, when you forget that God sees you already as blameless, then you believe that God never really could love you. What might be the best thing for some of you guys to do this morning is to finally just get out a list, to finally write down all the reasons you think that God shouldn't love you, and then ask him to remind you about the cross. Write all the things down, all the excuses you have, all the things you feel like you've done, all the reasons you think God couldn't or shouldn't love you, just write them down and ask God to remind you of the cross. Because on the cross, what God did is he said, I already paid for all of it. Everything is paid for. God sees you. Early on, Colossians chapter 2 says, our indebtedness, God nailed it to the cross. You see, we can't look better for God. We are already seen as perfect because we have put our faith in the person and the work of Jesus who was perfect on our behalf. And so what drives our actions, what drives our behaviors is not practice makes perfect and the pursuit of this elusive perfect performance life Rather, it is a grateful and joyful perseverance that to honor the Lord and to gladly give ourselves back to him, letting him see our mistakes, letting him see our failures, because he already knows them. Letting him remind us about Jesus' performance on our behalf, which makes us right with him and causes us to increasingly long to live for him more and more. You see, my kids, they can't become more my kids. They're already in. I cannot love them more. I'm not going to ever love them less. Their status as my kids will never change because of their actions. My love for them is not going to change because of their actions. I often pray that God will empower me to show that to them and to prove that to them. I tell them that all the time. But I pray that God empowers me to prove that to them, to show that to them over time. My heart is that it will produce in them a security and a vulnerability with me that will give me the chance to join God in shaping their hearts. You see, I want them to get a glimmer of what God is like as they see and experience him through me. Every night as I tuck Caleb into bed, I snuggle him every night and I pray over him. And I say, God, I want God to help him to see you in me. Help him to know what a good father is like. Help him to know what you are like because what he sees you in me. I want them to get a glimpse of what God is like as they see me and I want them to see him as the best, like the perfect thing that I could never be. I want them, when they read about God in the Bible and it says that God is a good father, I want them to think, how good. I know my dad loves me. God is like that, but better. You see, if you don't get that God already loves you, that he already sees you as perfect in Christ, then on the days when you struggle, on the day when the accuser uh, or your own voice accuses you of being worthless or calls you a screw up or tells you that you are a failure or calls you unlovely or says that you'll never measure up, then what will happen is you will never run towards God because you will constantly be trying to pretty yourself up. If you don't get that God already loves you, that he has affection for you, that he enjoys you, that he is pleased with you already, then you will never run to him because you'll always be trying to pretty yourself up and it will cripple your sanctification and it will rob you of joy. But if the grace of God and his love for you is poured out into your heart by his spirit, then what it will happen is it will be the best motivator in all the world because you know that you never deserved it and that you could never earn it. But you have it. And so you long to give your life back to the one who has loved you in that way. See, for some of you, your, your sanctification hasn't made any real progress in a while. And your pursuit of godliness is pretty stale. And I just want to invite you to remember like the miracle that God's love for you is. If we would get God's love for us, that would be like the cure to the staleness of our sanctification and our pursuit of godliness. Romans tells us that God pours his love out into our hearts by his spirit. So ask him that he would. Ask God that he would pour out his love for you through his spirit. You see the indicatives, who God says you are, They have to precede the imperatives. They have to precede them. And so Paul, again, reminds us about the indicatives of the gospel before he, again, goes on to talking about the imperatives. But he always goes on. Verse 13, he says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, he says, clothe yourselves with compassion, with kindness, with humility, with gentleness and patience. Bear with each other. Forgive one another as the Lord has forgiven you. And over all of these things, Put on love. You see, before we dig into these important things, it's important that we understand that these things are not primarily actions, they are primarily heart attitudes. The things that Paul tells us to put on, they're not primarily actions, they're primarily heart attitudes. And the question is how do you put on a new heart attitude? You don't, you have it put on you. God is the one who gives you new heart attitudes. And he's doing it, verse 10, in the previous passage we read, says he does it when we're being renewed in the knowledge after the image of our creator. Colossians 1 says, Jesus is the creator of all things. So what we do is we set our hearts and we set our minds on him. And by grace-driven effort, we pursue the Lord. And so what we, that looks like Paul says, is that we clothe ourselves with compassion. He wants us to be characterized as people who are compassionate. You see, compassion is an attitude towards others that is characterized by empathy rather than comparison. Compassion is about actively trying to put ourselves in other people's shoes to understand where they are coming from and how they think and how they feel because we genuinely care about them. I think marriage is one of the places where this so often gets worked out. Hannah and I are about as polarly opposite personality-wise as two people can get. Any personality test, we're always everything opposite. We've never taken a personality test where we had anything in common. All of them are all opposite. Every, every part of who we are is different. Sometimes I'm jealous of people of couples who like have lots of the same personalities. I'm like, wow, you can just like... It's like you're kind of married to yourself. How nice would that be, right? But I think one of the things that God's taught me over the years is that being married to someone who is wildly different than who I am is an opportunity every day to put myself in her shoes. And I don't think like her, and I don't, and I don't like process the world as she does, but every day I try to look, you know, I try to put myself in her shoes that I might see and experience the world through her lens. So that what she sees and what she experiences and what is good and what is hard, those things I come to have compassion for. Because I want to put myself in her shoes and I want to see those things from her, not just because I love her. You See, the opposite of compassion is not hatred. The opposite of compassion is indifference. The opposite of compassion is not hatred, it's indifference. Because compassion is about being concerned about the needs of others and putting yourselves in the position of others, and indifference is just not caring at all. Compassion is characterized not by looking the other way, but by getting into the dirt with someone else, by seeing things from their shoes, and by caring about them because you've put yourselves in that place. So we're to be characterized by compassion, likewise, kindness. Paul's not talking about just doing random good deeds or drive-by acts of kindness or things that just make you feel better because you served somebody. He's talking about being characterized by a heart attitude of kindness, which is characterized by looking by generosity and a joyful heart that overflows in our interactions with others. It's showing people the same love and grace that we have been shown by God. The thing that we often believe is that people deserve how they should be treated. And so if people are good, then they should be treated kindly. And if people are jerks, they should not be treated kindly. Uh, That's in opposition to the gospel because the gospel says that while you're God's enemies, he loved you. See, kindness in the Bible is not not based on what someone deserves. It's based on what someone needs. (laughs) The Bible talks about how it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. So often we think that if we would be kind to people, would, they would just never understand that they've wronged us or they would never, that they would just never get that they're that they need to work on things in their lives. But the Bible says that it's it's kindness that leads to repentance. Paul goes on to add humility. Humility is not self-deprecating or thinking less of yourself. Tim Keller says it this way. Philippians, referencing Philippians 2, he says that. Humility is about thinking of yourself less. It's not about thinking less of yourself, it's about thinking of yourself less. Philippians 2 says this look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. See, the pagan world of Paul's day, the Colossian world that he's writing this into, they did not admire humility. They did not admire thinking, putting the needs of others before your own. Instead, they admired pride and they admired domination. Not a lot has changed in 2,000 years, has it? Paul goes on to add gentleness. The ESV translates this word meekness. One commentator, I think, just really helpfully writes this. He says, gentleness or meekness is not weakness. It is power under control. The word that is used here is used to describe a soothing wind, a healing medicine, or a cult that had been broken. In each of these instances, there is a power. A wind can become a storm. Too much medicine can kill. A horse can break loose. But this power is now under control. The meek person does not have to fly off the handle because he has everything under control. Gentleness is not about lacking strength. It's not about lacking power. It's about having power and having it under control. And so we're to be characterized by compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness. But likewise, we're characterized by patience. Patience, I think, is... So much about patience is letting people be in process and walking with them. This is really hard for me personally. Patience is something I really wrestle with. I I wrestle with the source idol of power. You hear me talk about that some often. This week as I was praying over our passage this week and asking how God might be wanting to change my heart in light of it, God just really convicted me graciously about this thing in my own heart. You see, for me, uh, I want other people to do things on my own timeline, on my pace, the way I see it best, and in the progress that I think should happen. I think the internet should always move at one gigabyte speeds, and I think the same thing about discipleship. People should always just quickly move from the next thing to the next thing, right? We, We talked about these things, let's keep moving on, right? But that's not how people work. And that's not always how the internet works, unfortunately. What happens is I get frustrated and I, when things are not in my time or as I see fit. And what I have to keep remembering is that I am in process as well. God is patient with me as he lets me be in process because I am an absolute bonehead sometimes. Which leads us right to the next thing because Paul says that we're to bear with one another and to forgive one another. That word to bear with one another, the, the word there is forbearance. It, what it literally means is to hold up or to hold back. And Paul is referencing here what God is doing. God is forbearing towards sinners, that he holds back his judgment. In places like Romans chapter 2 and chapter 3, Paul references that. Meekness and patience and forbearance, they all go together. It's such good news that God has forbearance with us, that he is withholding his wrath so that as many as possible would come to know him. And it's good news as well that God is forgiving towards us. Paul says that we should forgive one another as God has forgiven us. You see, when we don't forgive, what it shows, what it reveals is that we don't understand what we have been forgiven from. When we wrestle and struggle with forgiveness, what it reveals is that we don't understand what we have been forgiven from. And when we don't forgive, it reveals that, un- that misunderstanding. You see, if we knew how much we had sinned, how much we had rebelled against the God of the universe, and yet how greatly he had forgiven us, like everything that would happen on this earth would seem like a small deal. It would seem like it would be easy to for-, for us to forgive. But forgiveness is hard because we don't understand how greatly God has forgiven us. Paul goes on. Over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity, Warren Weersby writes this, he says, all of the spiritual qualities Paul has named are aspects of true Christian love. As, re, as reading of 1 Corinthians, uh, corinthians 13 will reveal love is the first of the fruit of the spirit and all other virtues follow it joy peace patience gentleness kindness meekness when love rules in our lives it unites all of these spiritual virtues so that there is beauty and harmony which looks like spiritual maturity You see, love is not a feeling. Love is an action. The Bible talks about how Jesus showed us his love, not with a poem, not with a song, not with a romantic gesture. The Bible says that Jesus showed us his love for us is that when he died for us while we were still sinners. Not when we earned it, not when we were worthy of it, because we never were and we will never be. You see, love is the definition of putting others before yourself, and that is what characterizes all of the heart attitudes that Paul has listed. Compassion, kindness, gentleness, patience. It's about putting the needs of others and the good of others before your own. And what is so important that we see is that all of these things were perfectly modeled for us by Jesus. In verse 10 and Chapter 3 says, and it's the knowledge of him into what that we are being renewed by. When we think about the calling to have compassionate hearts, Hebrews calls Jesus our sympathetic high priest or our compassionate high priest. He says, For we do not have a high priest that is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. We're to be characterized by kindness, and it's it's the perfect example of kindness to see that over the, out of the overflow of the love of the Trinity, Jesus shows us God's love for us, that he has come to seek us and to save us. Paul says we're to be characterized by humility. and Philippians chapter 2 says that Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but instead he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in human likeness, being found in the human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Were to be characterized by gentleness or meekness, which is power under control. You see, Jesus on the cross could have at any time called down thousands of legions of angels. But instead, Jesus used his power not to save himself, but to choose to die so that he might save us. That's power under control. We think about a calling to be patient. I think you have to look no further than Jesus' patience with the disciples. I can just guarantee you I would have lost my mind like three weeks in with those guys. But Jesus spends years with them as they keep getting the same things wrong, as they keep missing the point, as they keep failing, as they keep messing up. And you see his love for them, you see his patience with them, he lets them be in process. We're called to forgive as God has forgiven us. There's no bigger picture of that than on the cross. Jesus, his murderers at his feet, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Romans 5 says this, this is love that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, Jesus modeled all of these things towards us. And what happens is when we receive them and when we experience them in him and from him through the gospel, what happens is that empowers us to turn around and to show those things to others because we've been shown them and we've been proven them, we've been experienced them in the person and the work of Jesus. But Paul goes on because in the passage he doesn't just use Jesus as our example. He says Jesus is our power as well, verse 15. It's the peace of Christ that should rule in our hearts. The word there that is, uh, the word rule is an athletic term. It means to preside at the games or to distribute prizes. In the Greek games, there were judges. We would call them umpires today. So Paul says, let the peace of God be the umpire of your heart. Let the peace of God call the shots in your heart. Let what is true because of who Jesus is be the thing that sets the pace, the thing that sets the tone, the thing that sets what is true. Instead of our feelings or our circumstances or our emotions, Paul says, have the peace of God, Christ's peace. Let that be the thing that rules in your hearts. You see, God is not only in control of all things, he is good and we can trust him with all things. And that what that does is it frees us to be characterized by compassion because we know how much we needed God's grace. We're able to see how much others need God's grace and to care for them as he did. It frees us to be characterized by kindness because kindness does not negate the sin of others, but it leads to the repentance of others. It frees us to be gentle because God's powerful enough to bring about his own will in his own time. We don't have to force it. We don't have to make it happen ourselves. It frees us to be characterized by forbearance because God will judge sin in his time and only he should we can leave it to him we can trust him to be just it frees us to be characterized by forgiveness in light of all that we have been forgiven it frees us to be characterized by people who are full of love because we know how much we have been loved and so we let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts Paul goes on to tell us the how of that How do we let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts? He goes on in verse 16, we let the message of Christ, God's word, the truths of the gospel, dwell in us richly. You see, the peace of Christ comes when we get a bigger view of God. Matt Selmer straighteth this, he says, worry comes from glancing at God while gazing at circumstances. Worry comes from glancing at God while gazing at circumstances, but peace comes from glancing at circumstances while gazing at God. Peace comes from glancing at circumstances while gazing at God. And Paul says we gaze at God in his word as we're reminded about who he is and who we are. We set our hearts and minds on the things that are above as we see them in God's word. And what it produces in us is the peace of Christ. That's why at River City, we preach from God's word all the time, College students, if you're here, we are so thankful for you. I am so grateful that you are here. It is our honor. It is our privilege to serve you. This summer, when you go back to your hometowns or when you graduate and you're looking to find a church, find a church that preaches the Bible. There are a lot of ways to think about the Bible. I think sometimes I talk about it and think about using the Bible and preaching out of the Bible like a swimming pool. Some, some people preach out of the Bible and they use the Bible as a diving board. They just read the text, and then they jump off into something else that they want to talk about. Some people use the Bible as patio furniture when they're teaching. They just kind of occasionally go revisit it every once in a while, and it's just like this nice little thing that sits off on the side of the pool. And some teachers of the Bible use, see the Bible as the pool itself. And I want you to invite to come swim in the waters of God's Word, and to be there and to dwell there. My kids, they go to the pool not to do stuff around the pool. They go to the pool to be in the water. That's how I want us to see God's word and the teaching of God's word. It's not something on the side. It's not something that we just dive off of. It's something that we must swim in. So we study the Bible here on Sundays, and we do it as well in Bible studies in small groups. That's why we study the Bible, and we don't really study books about the Bible. God's Word is the only thing that promises to change us, and so that's what we want to spend our time in together. Many churches intentionally or accidentally, they minimize the Word of God, whether they're thinking it's too offensive or it's out of touch or it's not understandable. But at River City, what we believe is that the Word of God must be central to everything. And so we gaze at God. We get a bigger picture of him so that we might have the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. And we do that by reading his word. But Paul also says that we gaze at God in worship. Verse 16 goes on, teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs from the spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. The worship leaders here at River City, we are really intentional about what we sing. Not all worship songs are created equal. What we sing about matters equally as much as the way we sing about it. What we sing about matters because what we sing about is what we dwell on. God has wired the human heart and the human brain so that music is something that just like feeds our souls. It's something that connects neurons in our brain and helps us to remember and dwell and think on things like no other thing does. And so music is one of the ways that we get to worship God. It's one of the ways that we get to gaze at him. It's one of the ways that we get to experience him. And so what we sing about really matters because what we sing about we dwell on. And so we gaze at God in his word and we gaze at God in, uh, in worship. And lastly, we gaze at God in community. Verse 16 says, teach and admonish one another. You look at all the list of the things that Paul has told us to put on. They are impossible to put on in private or in isolation or simply as individuals. You cannot be characterized by forgiving yourself. You cannot be characterized by being patient with yourself. You cannot be characterized by having compassion with yourself all of those things you put on in community they cannot be done alone and what happens is when we live in community it reveals our faults and it reveals our shortcomings and they become evident to us and to those around us which gives us the opportunity to actually help one another as we experience christ's character in one another it builds in us as well and so gospel-centered community becomes this incredibly powerful shaping force in our lives because while it highlights our flaws, it helps us to see and experience the love of Christ and the character of Christ in others in this tangible and practical way. What happens is it becomes a circle that feeds itself as we see and experience Christ in community. It fuels our imitation of him and our love for him and our, and our obedience to him. And so the circle continues. And all of it leads to what Paul closes chapter 3 with in verse 17. He sums up all that he has said, and he says it simply this way. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You see, our sanctification, it's motivated by thankfulness. Verse 15 says that we're to be thankful. Verse 16 says that we're to sing to God with gratitude in our hearts. Verse 17 says that we're to give thanks to God the Father through Christ. You see, it's our thankfulness that leads us to long that in whatever we do, in whatever we say, that it would all be in the name of Jesus and for the glory of God. You see, when Paul says that you would do everything in the name of Jesus, that is an incredible honor that we would get to represent him. But it is also a serious thing. Because what we're given the honor to do is to represent the King of the universe. So it's out of thankfulness for God's love and for our grace, for His grace, it fuels our response to Him, fuels our lives lived in obedience to Him, fuels our sanctification, which looks like putting sin to death and putting on Christ like character. Every week when we take communion, it's a chance for us to remember what we are thankful for. With the bread, we remember and are thankful for Jesus' body that was broken for us as he lived the life that we were supposed to live. And with the drink, what we remember is that, and are thankful for is that Jesus' blood was shed for us as he died the death that we deserve to die, that we were supposed to die. And we remember and we are thankful for Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf that accomplished all that we needed to be made right with God. And communion is a reminder for us of how thankful we are for all that Jesus has done and how worthy he is of every ounce of worship we have to give him. How our holiness and our obedience and our lives given completely over to him are worth giving. Our lives overflow with thankfulness, which looks like obedience as we put sin to death, as we clothe ourselves with Christ-like character. Every church does communion a little bit differently. At River City, um, you simply, um, there are two stations in the back and you go and you take the bread and you dip it in the juice. Communion is between you and God and so you go whenever you're ready. There won't be someone to dismiss you. And You don't need to be a member here. You just need to belong to Jesus because what communion is about is about remembering and celebrating the gospel. So as we take communion this morning, Where is God convicting you of your need to grow in Christlike character? Are you one who's characterized by compassion and kindness and gentleness? Are you characterized by patience and forbearance? Are you characterized by one who is ruled by the peace of Christ? Are you characterized by having the word of his dwell in your heart richly? Are you characterized by thankfulness? Where do you need to grow in Christlike character? And My heart for you, my invitation is to you. Don't push that aside. When you sense the correcting word of the Spirit speaking into your heart, don't push that aside. Rather, press into it because every time God points out a failure in your life, every time he points out a fault, every time he points out a a place you need to grow, he's inviting you into closer relationship with him. He's inviting you into closer intimacy with him, that you might enjoy him more, that you might live for him more, that you might see who he is more. As we take communion, ask God to show you where you need to grow and ask him to pour out his love for you into your heart by his spirit so that you would be secure and thankful in him. And remember the gospel as we sing, as we use the the symbolic remembrance of the bread and of the wine. Remember all that Christ has done for you. Ask him by his spirit to empower you to gaze at him, to set your hearts and your minds on him so that you would imitate him for your good and for his great glory. Let's pray. Jesus, we just come with thankful hearts to remember you and all that you've done for us. We're so thankful that we get a chance to in communion remember who you are and all that you've done. God, we wanna be a people who is characterized by the attitudes and the behaviors of Christ. God, we just confess that like we, we cannot do that on our own, we don't even want it on our own. So God, we need you to put your spirit within us. We need you to fill us with your heart and your compassion and your desires and your pursuits so that we might look like your son, Jesus. God, we want to be a people who reveals who you are, who lives in light of the identity you've been. we've already been given. So we ask, God, that you root the indicatives of the gospel deep within us. That you remind us of your love for us and of your grace for us, of, how we are forgiven and free in you, that you remind us of those things and that it would fuel our passionate obedience to you. God, help us to reject sin. Help us to pursue Christ-like character. God, we wanna love you in light of all that you've done for us. Pray that you'd empower us to do it. Amen.